0: I am US Senator Debbie Stabenow and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner show.
1: Hey, good morning everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner and we got an interesting one uh, for people who like to follow uh, politics around the state of michigan uh... going on today um, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour we're going to talk to evan space he's a uh, libertarian running for governor of the state of michigan in the middle in the second hour of our three-hour tour we're going to talk with uh, Wes Whitaker, who uh, appears on the show from time to time, is uh, a member of our political roundtable, Armchair Politics, and he is uh, working with an organization called uh, the Convention of States, and we're going to find out. Uh, we're going to talk some more about convention of states we've he's been on before, and we've talked about it, but he also uh led me to and introduced me to, if you will, my first guest this morning, who joins us by phone here in just a moment. Um, he is uh, a Republican uh, running for um, a a newly drawn uh, district for uh, the u s House of Representatives. And his name is Matthew Seely. He joins me by phone. Good morning, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. How are you? I'm doing great, and and it's uh, and it's great to talk with you. A uh, couple of couple of things I want to ask about um, with the the districts having been redrawn. Um, what district are you running for? What area does it cover? And do you consider it? an open seat despite the fact that there's an incumbent congressman in the race for that seat
2: okay so when we did the uh census back in 2010 uh michigan lost the congressional seat because we had lost so much population and we went from 15 congress representatives in congress to 14 and then when they did the 2020 census we lost so much population that once again, we lost a congressional representative and that took us down to 13. So they've redrawn the geography for the state of those 13 districts. So this new district, which was always known as the sixth, is now the eighth congressional district and it includes Genesee, Saginaw Bay and half of Midland County. What's significant about it is this region, which I like to call the i seventy five corridor, uh, has a, been a stronghold for the Democrats for sixty two years forty five of which the Kilby family has uh, possessed that seat in Congress well now, because of the new districting, it went from a plus nine democrat leaning district to a plus two republican leaning district, so most people are scoring it as a toss up so um it's it's a very very interesting race and it has a lot of national attention because there's a possibility to flip it from a Democrat stronghold back to a Republican seat for the first time in 62 years. I, I
1: remember uh, interviewing um, Dan Kildee's uncle Dale, who held the seat uh, before Dan, and um, he said that he was he was elected the same year as Jimmy Carter. He, he In fact, he, he was very proud of the fact that he and Jimmy Carter went to Washington at the same time.
2: Yeah, that's true. And that's, 1977, and you know what's interesting about that is it's funny how history repeats itself. Uh, back then, when Carter was elected, we had record inflation, the price of gasoline had doubled, and, uh, you know, the, the, the response to this by the Democrat Party was that Americans might just have to get used to the concept that our lifestyle may never be back to where it was and that we might have to just get used to living with less. And Ronald Reagan, of course, called that all hogwash and came in and changed everything. And we ended up, through Reaganomics, having a, a, an economic boom that was pretty unprecedented at the time.
1: And <laughs> during, during uh, Reagan's run for his first term. As President uh, George H.W. Bush, who ran against him in that race and eventually became his vice president, um, called Reaganomics voodoo economics. A phrase yeah, like, a, I think he had to eat some crow
2: scheme. over that. Yeah, it was a scheme. Remember, he kept calling it a scheme. That's right. Voodoo economics, this <laughs> risky scheme. And it turned out to be actually right on point, And it works great. And... His main objective was to take out the Soviet Union, which he did brilliantly. And again, it's funny how history repeats itself, because one of Reagan's key strategies to taking out the Soviet Union was to sit down with OPEC. He negotiated some long-term arrangements for purchases of oil if they were willing to lower the price of oil um, Significantly, and what it did is it took away the revenue stream that Russia was depending on to pay for the arms race, and it ended up bankrupting them. And right now, we're acting like we're victims to the oil companies when, truthfully, the President of the United States has the power to correct this issue very quickly. And um, we are basically funding Russia's war in Ukraine by allowing them to enjoy the highest price per barrel ever in history.
1: Matthew, how many Republicans are running in the primary coming up in August to uh, take on Dan Kildee in the fall? There are three of us. I see a lot of TV commercials for one, and, and I'm... Raising that for a couple of for a couple of reasons. One, because I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how you're campaigning and how you're um, you know getting yourself known among the electorate. But but also to find out where you, where you stand with the party because the party um, has started a tradition in the last decade or so of um, picking candidates, except for. Uh, candidates for governor and and maybe for national offices. I'm not sure. Um, but ha- has the Republican Party endorsed in this primary?
2: No, they won't. In fact, I was uh, just recently in Washington D.C. and met with the uh, NRCC. Well, I was thinking the of the state um, party,
1: Matthew. I, I hope I didn't. Oh, I, I hope no, I didn't uh, um, send you down the wrong no. path.
2: No, not at all. Um, th- the, the the state party and the national party both have a policy of not directly interfering with primaries. Uh, so if an individual who happens to be a member of that team wants to individually endorse somebody, they have that right. And uh, I know in this case that that happened, uh, a couple of people that were uh, pretty high up in the MIGOP decided to Uh, weigh in on their opinions on who should be the selection for Attorney General and Secretary of State, and that's all completely within the rules and, and allowable. It's just that the party itself did not officially endorse anyone and wouldn't until after the primary.
1: Well, I think people get a little bit confused, and that's why I brought it up, because there was what was called a nominating convention, a few weeks right. ago, in uh, I th- was it Helm Detroit or Grand Rapids, I can't remember. Grand but,
2: Rapids, yeah. Um, and, um, and
1: they, and they know, came out now, behind now. certain candidates for uh, Secretary of State, for Attorney General, those are the big ones. Um, right, but, but go ahead, Matthew.
2: Well, but yeah, and and you're absolutely right, that's what happened. Um, and the thing that I think was good about having this uh particular style of convention is in michigan for whatever reason we're one of the last states uh to have august primaries you know we've been watching primary races for the last month um and, and even further back in some cases of different states around the country and i think it really hurts michigan on both sides of the aisle that our, our um primary elections are so late in the game because right now if you're fighting a primary against someone in your own party to win a primary and then you don't know who the winner is or the clear winner is until august that person has less than 90 days to mount a campaign against their opponent and fundraise and get enough money to be able to do that so most of the time what happens is the incumbent isn't challenged just like Jocelyn Benson, for example, is not challenged through this process. And if we would have had not had this uh, nominating convention like we did uh, for the state party, we wouldn't have known who the Secretary of State nominee would have been until August. And then that person would only have a few months after spending all their time and money trying to win that primary; they'd have to start over again to to take on the actual incumbent. So we decided that we can't, the legislature is the only one that can change the the date of the state primary, but the party has the right for the positions that the delegates elect, which is attorney general, secretary of state, uh, Supreme Court, some other uh, regent positions uh, for universities. We decided to do those early to give those candidates time to be able to fundraise and strengthen their campaigns and up in their message so that they can really mount a, a great offense against the other side in the general election.
1: As as a member of the GOP, um, you must have, have watched closely, like, like a lot of us have, um, what happened with the petition filings for, uh, GOP candidates for governor, there were 10 initially, and then, uh, five were rejected, um, from appearing on the August ballot, and that's not one of the races that this nominating convention weighs in on, um, what were, what were your thoughts about what happened with those, uh, with those petition filings and subsequent rulings? And what's the process like for the office you seek? What did you have to go through to, to get on the August ballot?
2: Well, the first thing I think is, again, our legislature needs to recall all of these rules. I don't really know what the value of collecting signatures does for the voters of the state. I don't know what value it brings to anyone. It's literally an exercise to see that you can collect signatures. I don't really know what validity it gives a candidate. So number one, I think that that's uh, a standard and requirement that needs to be eliminated. I, I think it's far more important from the party standpoint that if you want to run uh, for one of these offices that they just have a, a uh, filing fee and make it significant enough that it keeps, you know, everybody from running from gov- for governor, but at the same time, uh, that money could help the party uh, move its cause forward. So I think that'd be a far more valuable uh, standard than to just have um, people collecting signatures. All that being said, there were groups that came into Michigan and posed as legitimate. Um, Uh, companies that that collected signatures. And they went after these uh, top candidates for governor and and secured contracts to collect signatures for them. And what they were doing were compiling 68,000 fraudulent signatures that would ultimately disqualify uh, these five top uh, running candidates for governor. And that in itself lets you know that the process is really flawed and broken and when you think about it from the standpoint of you know you've got 10 people running who need 15,000 signatures and you're looking at Mm. the volume of signatures that need to be collected for these people you can only sign a petition one time Mm. so it's it's really a difficult task when there's so many people in the field to do it and the idea that a non-elected um group of people uh can, bureaucrats basically, can go through and disqualify um, candidates for public office isn't really, I think, serving the will of the people. And I think that the the rulings were improper. I think there should have been some type of an exception made. I think prosecution of these people that misrepresented themselves and sold illegal signatures should should happen. And um, unfortunately, none of that will take place. And, you know, the the people who suffer from this are not the candidates, it's the voters. Matthew, I'm going to have to
1: pause you right there. I have to take a short break, but I really want to talk to you some more. Can you stick around for a few minutes?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Great. My, My guest is Matthew Seeley. He is a GOP candidate for uh u.s house of representatives in the eighth district from uh, mid michigan we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze in we'll be right back hello
3: out there everybody it's me tigger t-i-double-g-r that spells tigger and don't forget to remember to listen to tom sumner program on account of
2: because he's so bouncy <laughs>
1: And welcome back, everybody, as we continue our conversation with a GOP candidate in uh, August's primary to run against uh, U.S. uh, uh, House member Dan Kilde. His name is Matthew Seeley. Matthew, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. Um, Matthew, just before the break, we were talking about the... uh, the problem with uh, petition signatures and so on for some of the GOP candidates running for governor and how five of them got blocked from being on the ballot. Um, what was it like for you and your campaign getting um, getting on the ballot for uh, for August?
2: Well, it actually became a very exciting process for me. Um, the way that I got into this race was when I that it was being redistricted, and I saw that Dan Kildee was uh, vulnerable. Uh, it looked like it's gonna be an exciting race, and I was waiting for someone in the district to step up and uh, put their name in, someone with a great name recognition. Uh, I had heard that there was a possibility that Bill Shooty was looking at a run. I heard that there was a possibility Tom Leonard might look at a run, and I thought that, you know, all of these candidates have got great great name recognition. They're they're well-known in the area, and they could p- mount a really great uh, race against uh, the incumbents. So uh, when nobody stepped up and I saw the field of candidates, I just thought to myself, n- you know, neither one of these other people that are running can win this thing, and we're going to just hand another uh, um term to Dan Kildee. And I just thought that that was unacceptable with it being a toss-up race and knowing the failures in this district from the standpoint of where the economy is and the the standard of uh, living in this district. So I got into the race three weeks before the filing deadline. I was required to collect a thousand signatures. And, you know, it was very, very cold out. It was, you know, sleeting. And I, I remember standing out uh, collecting signatures, and like from the, from the mist of the rain, it would freeze. My hair was like a frozen shell. And um, I was very discouraged, and it didn't look like I was going to be able to make the standard. And Stand Up Michigan uh, came to my rescue, and all of their uh, signature collectors went out and started working very diligently for me. And we ended up filing early. We had collected 2,400 signatures in less than three weeks. I only needed 2,000 as the maximum that I could turn in, so I ended up having a group of people go through the qualified voter file, and we verified all the signatures, and um, ended up turning in a petition with 1,964 signatures. That's the year I was born, 1964, (laughs) and uh, we had no problem getting in, because we had verified those signatures, so um, it was a real exciting way to start off the race because it looked like it was just going to be too tall of a mountain to climb in such a short period of time and then the grassroots just embraced my candidacy and got around uh you know the idea of me running and and helped me in a great way so that's how i got on the ballot
1: now i was um i had just recently gotten an email um from your campaign talking about uh an endorsement by Freedom Works for America of your campaign, and um, I, I was looking th- through your website a little bit and saw that you have been um, more than a supportive, uh, more than a supporter for Donald Trump. You've been a very active participant in his campaigns here in Michigan and in uh, throughout the country back in in 2020, and I think even before that. Um, and and Donald Trump endorsements um, are playing a real significant role in a lot of races, uh, primary races in particular, around the country. Do you have or expect to get an endorsement
2: from Donald Trump? I do expect to get an endorsement from President Trump. Uh, I've been told as much from his um, uh, staff. I talked to uh, part of the people who are his... What I would call inner circle team, uh, and what right now what they do is they're focusing on specific races in states that have closer primaries. His uh, pattern this time around has been to um, wait until like a week before the election to release an endorsement because I think he he thinks that that creates a buzz for the candidate last minute in awareness and, and motivates people to go out to vote instead of releasing an endorsement real early and it kind of fizzling out and losing its its importance. So I I expect that endorsement, and I've been told that it's written and literally on his desk. So that's an exciting thing for me as well.
1: Now, without divulging any campaign secrets, I I mentioned in the last segment that One of the other uh, Republican candidates that's on the ballot in August is running a significant number of um, television ads. And I guess I'm wondering if you have a TV ad campaign coming in the works or if there's some other strategy for developing name recognition so that when people look at that ballot, yours is the name they see.
2: You know, I think that, uh, my, th- like my competitor, Paul Jung, is, um, you know, running a very traditional campaign. He's spending 90% of his money on, um, airtime. And the, the data just doesn't support the idea that that's where you get the most bang for your buck in reaching voters. We're doing some pretty innovative things with, um, uh, more techie type of, uh, of um, marketing. We're very pleased with the uh, metrics we're receiving from our marketing company. And um, we're, we're really, we're really happy with our plan. It's just not traditional. The world's changed. Most people only watch TV when they're watching a streaming service or watching something on demand. People are not in, you know, the, you can just look at the uh, rating numbers to, to back up what I'm saying. People are just not watching, you know, standard, network television like we did even 10 years ago.
1: Well that's that's certainly true and um, I I know a lot of what I've been watching at least the last couple of weeks have been the um, uh, presentations by the uh, congressional committee that's conducting hearings into the um, capital insurgency or riot or whatever you want to call it from january 6th of last year 2021 a lot of which is uh pretty negative it's a waste of time well that's (laughs) that's what i'm leading up to matthew is what your thoughts are about that process but more importantly what media and a lot of people even some republicans are calling the big lie with regard to the election outcome of 2020
2: well i think we're kind of blending two topics together so the first one i'll take on are the hearings well i wanted to Um, give
1: you something to work with matthew
2: okay yeah oh i get it i get it i get it and i and uh it's important both subjects are important tom so i get the the point but um as far as january 6th is concerned Anybody who believes that 200 rioters that desecrated the nation's capital led by some clown in a Viking's helmet without firearms or any kind of major weaponry are going to overthrow the U.S. government. If they really believe that, they need to go back and examine the power and might of the, um, you know, capital forces and National Guard and U.S. Army uh, that are all in place in Washington, D.C., it would take a lot more than that to mount an insurrection. There's no one who's been charged with an insurrection. There was no one who was ever charged with any kind of gun uh, charge or weapons charge. So I think that this is a great way to hold a shiny object up so that the public focuses on that instead of the fact that gasolines at a record high, inflation is almost at 10%. People's Uh, Stock market um, valuations on their retirement pensions and 401Ks is down 30%. We are failing economically. And when you don't have a plan and you don't have a response to your failure, the best thing that you can do is change the subject. And that's what this is all about. This has nothing to do with something that was an ugly moment in our history two years ago. But truthfully, um, If you're going to call the protests that took place the summer prior to the election, peaceful demonstrations and people exercising their civic right to peacefully assemble and protest while they're burning down police stations in Minneapolis and shooting police officers and and, uh, quarantining off sections of a major city and calling it the, the, the zone of CHAZ or CHAP or whatever it was, and um, wielding firearms to protect that zone. If those are peaceful protests, then so was the protest on January 6th. You can't have it both ways. So there was no way that that was an insurrection. There was no way that there was an attempt to overthrow the government. It was a lot of angry voters that felt that their vote had been stolen from them. They were upset about it. They went to their capital to let their elected representatives know they were upset about it. And there were a group of people that took it way too far, and they should be prosecuted for the vandalism that they caused and um, their actions that day. However, I don't think those and people... Matthew, I, I people just,
1: just want to underscore the point you just made about if they've gone over the line, they should be prosecuted. And I think that's true of, of um, protesters on both sides of the aisle and from a variety of different issues.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, the people that burned down the police station in Minneapolis and, and caused all the harm that they did, they should be charged as well. But when you've got Democratic groups, you know, posting bail for people and then charges getting dismissed, you know, in bulk, that, that's just not, that's not the way that the justice system is supposed to work. So that's my feeling on all of this. It's really just a shiny object to keep us not focused on the failures that are occurring economically in our country. Um, and then as far as, uh, the election of 2020, you know, it, it's very simple to, uh, dismiss this and say that nothing happened and that we should all just move on. But the truth is, is that the constitution is very clear that all elections are conducted by the state legislature The legislature is the only entity that has the authority to create election law, rules, procedures. And when the secretary of state and the governor took $15 million of COVID relief money and printed and mailed out 7.7 million absentee voter applications against state law and then started changing the rules on signatures, started changing the rules on verification with I.D., started creating uh, drop boxes for um, mail-in votes and destroyed the chain of custody of those ballots, they broke the law, they broke the Constitution, they broke federal law, and that made the election fraudulent. And there's really nobody who who, uh, wants to have an honest conversation about the Constitution and about federal law on elections that can argue with that point. There's there's something,
1: there I, there's something there's <laughs> something that i that I, I'd like to have explained to me because i I think it's entirely possible that both sides of the aisle try to figure out ways and strategies and 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 try to figure out how to cut corners to you know give their side the best advantage when the votes are counted. But Republicans had a pretty good year in twenty twenty two there were. A lot of people who won uh seats in in states and and in the uh, in Congress um and governors uh races Republicans did really well if there was enough fraud to tip the election against Donald Trump, why wasn't it worse for Candidates that were down the ballot a little bit.
2: Well, in a way, do you know what? Do you know them. what I mean, Matthew?
1: I mean, I'm I'm puzzled by this. I do, and, that.
2: I, and I think it's, I think there's an easy answer for it. Right now in Michigan, we're going to have 13 congressional seats, uh, so those districts all have to have different ballots. The only thing that's going to be the same on all of those ballots is the top of the ticket. Okay, so the governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general offices will all be the same, but the rest of the ballot will be different. So if you're just trying to manufacture a win for the top of the ballot by submitting um, fraudulent ballots, you're you're not going to create 13 different sets of fake ballots. You're just going to vote at the top of the ticket, and the rest of those ballots will not be filled out. And that's why we wanted a forensic audit, because we wanted to look at the ballots and verify whether or not that had happened or not. And you can't do that by counting them. You have to actually examine them forensically and see where there are just thousands of ballots that only had a, a vote for Donald Trump and Gary Peters, or were they completely filled out, were they, were they legitimate ballots? And that's the way you could find out, because it makes no sense, like in California, that people went out and they all voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden, but yet we picked up congressional seats for Republicans in California. I don't know too many people who go, Yeah, I'm voting for Joe Biden, but that Republican in my district, I want him to be my representative. doesn't make sense let me um
1: let's let's move on to some of the more current things you mentioned um that uh, of course, we all know that Gas prices are hovering around $5, and uh, inflation is is just shy and and maybe going over 10% in the very near future. Um, there are some significant problems with what's going on that have developed over the last couple of years since, uh, since the last election. But... Um, what what are the things that you think need to be done, and how can a congressman from the I-75 corridor, as you call it, Matthew, um, make a difference?
2: Well, I have one campaign issue, and, and that's really it, and that's all I'm running on, and that's jobs. I want to create jobs for the people in the new eight congressional districts I believe that this is one of the great um, tragedies of the U.S. manufacturing uh, attrition that took place as a result of NAFTA. This was one of the great areas in the world for manufacturing. It was the capital of the automotive industry. You had, you know, Flint and Buick City uh, in Saginaw. We had unbelievable amounts of uh, auto workers and Teamsters and U.S. steel workers all productive, enjoying a great lifestyle, and when General Motors pulled the plug on on that area, no one ever went in and tried to create a rebirth. And there's just been more and more attrition, and the fact that we're the only state that's lost population in the last two consecutive censuses to the point where we lost congressional representation uh, supports that. So what I want to do is I want to go out and I want to I want to become a salesman for this region. I want to go out and talk to Fortune 500 companies and tell them that we've got shovel-ready industrial sites on freshwater sources that are ready to go. We've got a great group of uh, you know skilled workers sitting on the sidelines ready for an opportunity to go back to work for a real job with real benefits and, and watch how bringing in that one large company – can be the mustard seed that creates the change. Where we're looking at eventually, lots of businesses thriving in the area, people employed, blight being removed so that new homes can be built and new development goes in. Ultimately, those homes get sold and you have uh, you know property taxpayers who those taxes trickle down to the county and the local level, and ultimately they have the money and their budgets to fund the police, clean up crime. And then as the area grows, there's a demand for more small businesses. You need another Dunkin' Donuts. You need another dry cleaner. And you watch this entire rebirth that will take place as a result of somebody caring enough to go out and and sell these corporations on the idea that Michigan is open for business. And this area specifically is the right place to do business. I'll give you an example. Intel Corporation opened a chip factory After COVID, because China had failed them and literally shut down the automotive industry. And they opened up a plant in Arizona and they're going through 15 million gallons of fresh water a day. And there's no water table in Arizona. But we never took the time to meet with them and to say, hey, listen, we've got the Buick City uh, site, which is three and a quarter million square feet on a fresh water source. Ready to go with a very skilled workforce. Ready to go. Why not consider Michigan? Why not move here? Why not make chips here? And what makes it even more upsetting is, Bay City uh, had a real large investment a few years ago, forty million dollar investment. Company came in and opened a chip factory, and um, they are they are making the Exos frames, the shells for the computer chips. And those could have literally been shipped down I-75 to Intel. Intel could have used those to assemble onto their chips. And then those could have been shipped a little further down I-75 to the truck and bus plants and other plants in Michigan. And those chips could have been installed right here. And that's just one idea of the um, level of synergy that we could create if we just get a little bit aggressive and start selling Michigan to people. Because our governor is not going to do it.
1: Matthew, I, I feel like we're just getting started talking, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I always want guests to have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future, like, uh, you know, just just reading about your work with Operation Gridlock and Operation Haircut and the MAGA Boat Parade and, and other things that you've done Um to uh, be active um, before uh,
2: deciding to run. Um, do you have a website you'd like to share? Yeah, you can just go to com or check us out on Facebook at Sealy for Congress. I think the biggest thing about me is, is that I'm not a politician. I've been a business owner for 32 years. I own a manufacturing facility. So I understand these workers that have been put on the sideline. I understand the manufacturing process. And I understand how critical it is to be the backbone of any economic growth or redevelopment. I mean, the reason that China has grown so much is because they've become uh, such leaders in manufacturing, and we allowed that to happen. When America was growing at its greatest rate, uh, 90% of our economy was based in manufacturing. The rubber meets the road when you're actually making things that people consume. You can't have an economy based on service. And we need to put people back to work and we need to make things. And that's how you can thrive as, as, as a uh, economy and as a society. So I understand this uh, firsthand. I've, you know, spent 32 years of my life in manufacturing doing that. And I want to bring those jobs back to this area. I want to create a rebirth that becomes a template for the rest of the nation to use in areas that the Democrats have bled dry and taken to a point of no return. And when you look at Flint, for example, when the Kildee family was elected in 1977, Flint had a population of about 190,000, was one of the top 10 most affluent cities in the United States. Fast forward to today, population's 82,000 and one of the top 10 most violent cities in the United States. That's unacceptable. But yet our congressman has done nothing to change that dynamic. In fact, he's conceded the fact that the real solution for flint is the people to accept the fact that it's just going to shrink and be smaller and i just think those are unacceptable uh ways of approaching uh this problem and i think that there's solutions that make sense for people and i'd like the opportunity to represent them
1: well, Matthew, uh, that's the perfect spot to uh, to end. And I want to thank you for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. And I always applaud people that are willing to roll up their sleeves and, and get out and actually do something about the things that are going on. So good luck in August, and uh, maybe we'll talk again.
7: Hi, this is Joe me- Byte from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. This is our shot. Now
2: it's up to you.
6: (laughs) Yo. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
4: So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed it's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And Mom, Dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you.
0: Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor? She calls every week. A doctor.
4: I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nussel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: More than one audience has been taken unaware by the humor of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Here is Senator Goldwater accepting the nomination for President of the United States at the annual mock convention of Washington's exclusive Alfalfa Club. Well, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me since Walter Ruther made me an honorary auto worker. <laughs> gentlemen? Gentlemen, if my voice trembles a little at this historic moment, I'm sure you'll understand. It takes my breath away even though I feel the White House is now ready for me since Jack Pullen remodeled it in an 18th century decor. <laughs> and, and frankly, I, I feel it's a double honor since I've never even been to Harvard. <laughs> but members of this convention, this has been a genuine draft, not just the kind felt by reservists. And I've, and I've yielded to it in the sincere belief that no man, with a drop of patriotism in his veins, could turn down such a golden opportunity to advance his family. Uh, of course, the, the Goldwater clan is not as large as the Kennedy clan, and my brother Bob doesn't want to be in government, He, he promised Dad he'd go straight. <laughs> and I wouldn't be truthful if I said that I was fully qualified for the office. I don't play the piano, I seldom play golf, and I never play touch football. But I hope you'll find it in your hearts to accept a president who just sits behind a desk and works. Now, I must take note of the fact that here, that my opponents call me a conservative. If I understand the word correctly, it means to conserve. Well then, I'm just trying to live up to my name and conserve two things that most need conserving in this country, gold and water. me to turn to my campaign platform, but before I do that, I just want to say that I don't apologize for being a conservative. I can remember whether conservative and mother were clean words. <laughs> but as you all know, I've argued for some time that we should do away with the cumbersome and lengthy, unmeaningful and platitudinous promises that the platforms of both parties have become. We need bold, brief statements that all Americans can understand. Now, the first blank fits neatly on one page, but I think it's basically sound and honest. It will mean the same thing to you whether you live in the North or the South, whether you're a farmer in Maine or an industrial worker in California. It says, and I ask you to pay close attention, elect Goldwater. (laughs) Now... Gentlemen, that's it. No nonsense, no shilly shelling, no hair splitting. Just elect Goldwater. It's got a nice ring to it that I sort of like. And is there anyone from the highest to the lowest? From the ordinary school child to the lowliest Harvard professor who can possibly mistake this meeting? I'll go even further. Is there anyone in this convention hall who doesn't understand it? <laughs> now, members of this convention, the other two planks deal with labor, education, foreign policy, and the farm problem. Here's plank number two elect Goldwater. <laughs> Now, you may notice a certain similarity between the first blank and the second. And I want you to know that that was delivered. It's been my experience that the public is confused if you offer too many issues. The thing to do is to get a hold of a good one and stick to it. Hammer it home. Repetition, gentlemen, is the way Madison Avenue sells toothpaste and soap, and it's the way the new frontier stays in the limelight. But when repetition occurs at the White House, and it has since 1932, it's not a sales pitch, it's a giveaway. You don't even have to guess the price. And now, gentlemen, for the final plank. Plank number three. This is the bell ringer, and it's even shorter. It just says, Ditto. (laughs) There, gentlemen. I suggest that you have a platform in five words. Elect Goldwater, elect Goldwater, ditto. (laughs) And just to keep things symmetrical, I think I'll hold the budget down to five figures. Jane Mansfield's for openers, and I'll accept nominations for the other four.
3: show down here it's a Tom Sumner program don't you know go on go on get out of here